Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are very excited to be launching a new series on the book and the sacrifices of Leviticus. And here in this episode, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and David Field are going to discuss the merits of studying Leviticus. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK, and also by David Field, who is uh, here visiting Birmingham. Uh, David is a former pastor in England, a uh, former professor at a theological college in London. Uh, He's worked uh, some time in business, and he's uh, currently studying to move into a counseling ministry. And uh, we expect and hope to have him back here in Birmingham a year from now to uh, teach a course on pathways of human maturity, which he had uh, unfortunately had to withdraw from this year. But we're glad to have him once again on the podcast. And uh, this time we're beginning a new series of uh, discussions. For a couple of years, we, we focused on lectionary readings and discussed the lectionary readings Uh, for the particular week. Uh, We did a short series on the Song of Songs, about 10 10 episodes of podcasts on the Song of Songs recently. And with this episode, we're starting a series of, that will last a couple of months, on the Levitical sacrificial system. We hope to pick up other aspects of the theology of Leviticus uh, as we go through, but we're doing the first chunk just on the sacrifices, and we'll focus on the, those are the early chapters of uh, of Leviticus. And in this first introductory episode, I want to s- just spend some time discussing with uh, David and Alistair about the reasons why we might be paying attention to Leviticus. Why, why is this a book that Christians should uh, devote time to studying? Uh, there's some obvious reasons why that's a question we need to ask. The main reason we need to ask it is um, because the book of Leviticus is full of instructions and descriptions of things that we no longer are required to do or to worry about. Uh, Women who've had uh, babies don't need to go through a 40 or 80 day period of purification before they return to church. Women who are having their menstrual period don't have to stay away from church because they're impure. Men who have a genital issue don't have to stay away from church. If you've been to a funeral on Saturday night, you don't have to stay away from church for a week because uh, you're going through a purification rite from corpse defilement. That's in the book of Numbers, but it's part of the purity system that's mainly revealed in the book of Leviticus. Uh, we, we don't go to church and slaughter animals. Uh, we, don't, um, we don't do the things that um, Leviticus requires. We don't have ministers who are robed in the kinds of robes that, that Aaron wore. Leviticus is a book uh, about Old Covenant worship, about a life in the sanctuary, Part of the book, about half of the book, is also devoted to uh, life in the land, the holiness that God requires of Israel in the land. But much of it uh, is describing things that we don't do anymore, so we need to ask, what relevance does this have to Christians, since it's not directly relevant? 
I think the other thing that makes it worth asking this question is the fact that the book is so daunting, partly because it's foreign to us. We don't do it. If we were doing the Levitical, uh, if we were priests and doing the Levitical rites daily, then Leviticus would seem kind of introductory, probably. Uh, we would have a lot more knowledge of the details of how these uh, these rituals worked than Leviticus itself records. Because we don't do it, it's it seems difficult. Uh, there's also uh, seems to be a lot of odd details, a lot of things about disposal of particular parts of an animal when you're offering it, very detailed instructions about which which animals can and cannot be eaten, odd requirements, what is it that makes a land animal clean, what makes it unclean. It's not the kinds of things that we expect it to be. It's not about the cleanliness of the animal's habits. It has to do with their the kind of the kind of hoofs that they have the kind of feet that they have, and also whether they chew the cut or not. That's an, that's an odd rule. Why would that be the rule to determine whether an animal's clean or unclean? So that there are just a lot of oddities, and it's a difficult book. A lot of Christians, I think, tend to avoid it. Uh, it's, it's difficult because of its foreness. It's difficult because of the details. It's also difficult because there are very little explanation given for the things that are going on. It'd be nice if we occasionally had a little footnote that said, the reason for doing the, the sin offering this way is X, and we had a little bit of an explanation. We get some explanation of the uh, purpose of the system when we get to the New Testament, but even that doesn't explain the details uh, in the way that we would like. And yet we're told in, uh, we get the, hint, we get, uh, the uh, impression in Hebrews that those, the details of the system are important because the the writer the, uh, to the Hebrews is uh, speaking about those details and finding theological significance in them. So they're important, but they're never explained explicitly, and we don't do them anyway. So uh, it seems a, like avoiding the book is uh, the better part of valor. So with all these with all these uh, uh, reasons to uh, make it difficult and a, a book that we tend to avoid, uh, we do need to take a little bit of time discussing why the book is important. And I, I'm convinced that the book of Leviticus is hugely important for understanding the rest of the Bible. It's hugely important for understanding uh, the character of the church. And uh, even uh, even though we don't do all the things that Leviticus says, I think there's a, there's a vision of Christian living that's embodied in Leviticus. The basics of Christian worship are found in Leviticus. Uh, there's, um, without Leviticus, I think we're, we've got just a hole in our biblical theology and I think we also have a significant gap in our understanding of what the church is supposed to be, how it's supposed to be structured, how our worship is supposed to go, and so on. So we're going to give attention to it for those reasons. When we think about theology, we tend to sort our theology according to abstract concepts. So we order our theology according to notions that are very much abstracted from a lot of different particulars and we use those abstract notions to understand things in more universal and deep particularizing terms but when we come to the book of leviticus what you'll notice is an intense focus upon particularities of the material order so it talks about um bodily emissions sweat blood about skin diseases around specific areas of the camp and um, particular times of the year whatever it is and it maps the life of israel onto those things within a structure of thought that is very alien to us but which will help us to understand scripture more generally why is it that the high priest relates to the bull 
for instance, or the leader of the people to the goat, um, the male goat. These sorts of relationships will help us to understand the deeper structure of Israel's life as it's played out within a sort of poetic or analogical structure that illumines and articulates and um, performs these particular meanings that we'll see within the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a deeply theologically illuminating book when we come to the New Testament because, as um, Dr. Lightheart has already pointed out, the something like the book of Hebrews is deeply attentive to each one of these details of the tabernacle, of the sacrificial system, of the differences between specific sacrifices, of different aspects of the sacrificial rite, and the significance of the tabernacle, and the whole Levitical system that surrounds it. And when there is the work of Christ, that is the, that is the framework within which it makes the most immediate sense. It's the um, natural framework within which it finds its, its explication, that it um, starts to reveal its true significance, to show the connections between things once we place it within this world. And so if we're not deeply engaging with the book of Leviticus, we're missing out on a lot of the riches of the biblical text more generally. Yeah, I, th I think it has, um, pick up on one of the points you were making, I think it has significance as a, uh, among, among many other things, it has significance as a, a kind of an exercise in typological imagination. This is part of, part of the reason why we wanted to spend some time in the Song of Songs. It has a similar kind of challenge to us to try to think in the, in the, analogical worldview or the typological worldview that the Bible presents, or what, what Jim Jordan calls the symbolic worldview of the Bible. And Leviticus is structured in a way, the, the Levitical institutions are structured in a way that assume that kind of analogical, typological imagination, but don't explain it. And so it's an exercise in trying to, as you said, figure out analogies between particular kinds of animals and particular kind of people. How do those analogies work? That's And that's not just relevant to uh, the way that the Old Covenant sacrificial system worked, but it's also relevant to, just to the general way we look at the world. It's, a, it's presenting to us a, 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 a view of reality uh, that has this uh, typology built into it. Perhaps um, since we're adopting something of an apologetic positioning with regard to the question, I could lay down two of the simplest arguments from two of the most basic New Testament texts relating to Christian discipleship. If we were to, if we were to uh, ask pastors what are the uh, five or ten um, main texts you'd use from the New Testament to describe Christian discipleship, I would be astonished if love your neighbor as yourself were not among them, and astonished if be holy as I am holy, were not among them. But inasmuch as, as you both know, uh, each of those comes from the book of Leviticus. When the Lord Jesus says, uh, the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, uh, and like it, love your neighbor as yourself, the Lord Jesus clearly knows the book of Leviticus and reflects upon it 
and uses a part of it uh, in his answer to one of the most important questions that ever could be asked. Uh, when the Apostle Peter wants to uh, summarize in some sense um, his aspiration for and injunctions to uh, the scattered churches, then he quotes Leviticus. And so we want to be faithful Christian disciples. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to be holy as the Lord is holy. We'll want to go to Leviticus where those words are recorded. To build on that, uh, the uh, contrary, contrarian might say, well, sure, Leviticus 19 is full of valuable ethical teaching. Uh, not just love your neighbor as yourself, but it talks about you know not setting up a stumbling block for the blind. It talks about care of the poor. Uh, the, center, the center of Leviticus 23, the very structural center of Leviticus 23, which is mainly a calendar of festivals that we don't keep anymore. Right at the center, it says uh, it talks about gleaning and and, and uh, making sure that the the poor of the land share in the abundance of the land. So somebody say, sure, there's there's snippets. We can, we can pick out Leviticus 19, that's, that's instructive to Christians. We can find little bits and pieces elsewhere. I think the, the thing that's, uh, imp the, what's important I think is for Christians to see how the book is integrated and how the whole system is integrated and how the sanctuary system, full of things we don't do anymore and requirements that we don't keep anymore, is actually the framework within which all those ethical teachings are found. So there's a, there's a link between uh, the tabernacle system that's described early in the book and the ethical teaching that comes later in the book. And those two things are essential to see together in order to see the full impact. And even to, see, get, to get the implications for Christian discipleship right, we need to see how those two things work together. But if I, if I take you as the contrary, okay, I'll, I'll argue the back, yeah. uh, then I would be entirely pragmatic about it. And I'd simply say, you grant, O contrarian, <laughs> that these two texts are found in the book of Leviticus and are very important. How are we going to find out both what they mean and whether the other 36.95 chapters, uh, no, that's not, yes, um, uh, are going to inform our Christian discipleship other than by spending time with them, hmm. carefully studying them, seeing the connections. What we really need is a series of podcasts on the <laughs> Levitical sacrificial system that will enable us to understand whether be holy as I am holy and love the Lord your God, uh, lo love your neighbor as yourself um, are the only things in Leviticus worthwhile for New Testament that's, believers to attend to. That's a, that's a brilliant idea. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that came up. If I could highlight one thing that I think uh, illustrates the kind of integration of the book that I've been, I was talking about. Uh, right at the beginning of Leviticus, in uh, a number of the rules about uh, the animal offerings, it specifies that the animal has to be without blemish. Interestingly, it doesn't say that about every offering. We, we project that onto every offering, but it doesn't actually say that about every offering. So that variation in itself is kind of interesting. God accepts blemished animals, apparently, at some points. But most animals have to be unblemished as they're being brought in, brought to the altar. It's never explained what blemish means, and the word actually is a, it's a term that's been used prior to Leviticus in Genesis and Exodus to refer to blameless human behavior. Noah is blameless. Uh, Abram is called to be blameless. And then 
if you're reading through the Pentateuch, you come suddenly to this ritual that requires an animal to be blameless. And what your mind is already geared to think is there's some kind of moral requirement. But what would that mean with an animal? It's not until late, much later in Leviticus, Leviticus 22, that you get a list of the, uh, what, the what actually blemishes are for animals. But you start out with this kind of ambu ambiguity that uh, this is a, an argument that comes from an Australian scholar named Lee Travaskis. And he says the very ambiguity uh, opens up the possibility for a moral allegory in the sacrificial system because the word itself has this moral import. So that's a, that's a clue to the fact that when you're doing these ritual sacrifices, you are seeking atonement, you are uh, seeking reconciliation with God through this sacrifice. At the same time, there's a kind of uh, as a, a ritual allegory that's uh, showing what kind of person is acceptable in the presence of God. Who can enter in the in God's holy hill? Uh, man with a clean heart, pure hands, and a clean heart, uh, pure hearted, clean hands. It's not lifted up his soul to vanity, not sworn deceitfully, and so on. Psalm fifteen, Psalm twenty four. But that's already embedded in that in that that ritual. So that and that's that's just one one hint of the way that the two parts of the book, if we could call them that, the, or the, the the ceremonial ritual parts and the moral parts are integrated together. They're not they're not really separable. And it, I think that points to the larger reality for Christians that our lives as Christians can't be we can't segregate the Christian life from the life of the community in the liturgy. Those two things for Israel are integrated. And that's one of the big messages, I think, of Leviticus, that uh, liturgical and put it, I think, in a, a better way, the liturgical life in the sanctuary flows out into a liturgy of life uh, in the land. And that's, that pattern is still true for Christians. In addition to not separating the moral from the um, liturgical and ritual dimensions of the book, it can be helpful, it's very important, I believe, to see the book of Leviticus within the context of the narrative of the Pentateuch more generally. It's connected to the narrative elements of the story, and we'll see some of those narrative elements appear at certain junctures within the text itself, for instance, in chapter 8 and elsewhere. But what I think we are seeing within the story of the Exodus is Israel being brought out of the house of bondage so that they might serve the Lord. And within the book of Leviticus, we are seeing what it means to serve the Lord. We're also seeing in the book of Genesis so many of these themes that are implicitly sacrificial. The um, binding of Isaac. We see the binding of Isaac paralleled with the sending out of Ishmael, these two sons, these two. And then we have the twin goat themes with Esau and Jacob and also with Judah and Joseph. And you have the story of the Exodus itself, the Passover, the firstborn sons and the, the Passover lamb. And all of these stories have, as part of their deep logic, a placing of the human characters in relationship to animals. And within the story of within the text of Leviticus, I think we're seeing part of the underlying logic of the narrative portions of scripture exposed. And so for that reason alone, relating it not just to the moral elements of scripture, but also to the narrative elements, it can serve to be illuminating and to disclose deeper theological significance, not just in the story of Christ and his cross, but also in these stories from the Old Testament that are very familiar to us, 
but perhaps we've never looked closely at the underlying logic. Yeah, that uh, the uh, Leviticus illumines the narratives and works both ways, of course, where the the narratives of Genesis and Exodus are background for understanding the Levitical rituals and requirements. I think you could say one of the reasons why Leviticus doesn't provide explanations for the rituals is that uh, there's a they're pre-explained. Um, they fit into, as you say, they fit into this narrative, uh, into the narrative of the Pentateuch. They fit into that context, uh, and that's providing the explanation. Um, that again requires us to be able to enter into the into the world of the Bible and to begin to see see the world through the biblical eyes, uh, and then we can begin to see these connections uh, between the between narrative and and uh, ritual and the rules of sanctuary rules of Leviticus and so on. I, I, I wanted to pick out the particular uh, reference to the cross of Christ, which obviously is one of the reasons why uh, we. It pays to spend some time with the uh, the offerings of Leviticus, which is what we're going to do in the next couple of months. Uh, that portion of Leviticus, in particular, the first seven chapters. Jesus' death is described as a as a sacrifice in the New Testament. If we want to know what that means, then we have to look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament to find out what those sacrifices were accomplishing, how they were done, how they're fulfilled in Christ. Those are not straightforward, and we shouldn't assume that we know what sacrifice is from seeing what it says in the New Testament. The New Testament usage is assuming uh, the Old Testament theology of sacrifice. And one of the one of the striking things I think about the when we, when we begin to begin to try to understand the work of Christ against the background of Levitical sacrifice, one of the striking things that emerges is the I believe the entire work of Christ is fulfilling the sacrificial procedure. We tend to focus on one moment of sacrifice, which is an animal dying as a substitute for the worshiper. Jesus dies as a substitute for us, therefore Jesus' death is sacrificial. But if you slaughtered an animal and did nothing else, you have not performed a sacrifice. You've not done an offering in the way that Leviticus requires. Uh, there are certain preparations prior to that slaughter. There's certain things you do with different parts of the animal, with the blood of the animal, with the different uh, body parts of the animal. You have to present them on the altar. Uh, the, the work is distributed between the worshiper and the priest. The substitutionary death is a moment in a sacrificial procedure, but that sacrificial procedure begins earlier and extends beyond that. And what you have in the sacrifice is the whole movement uh, of the animal through death onto the altar and then transformed to smoke to become a soothing aroma to the Lord. That whole movement is the sacrificial movement of Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. And so I think when, when Hebrews talks about Jesus completing his priestly work by entering into the sanctuary and presenting his blood, uh, he goes into the sanctuary not by the blood of an animal, but by, by his own blood. That's describing, you could say that's describing the the Day of Atonement when the priest enters into the Most Holy Place. It's also describing the full movement of a sacrificial procedure because the animal in the, in the sacrifice is entering into the presence of God as an aroma. Jesus is not just dying for us, but he's being uh, transfigured and glorified and ascends for us. That's all part of the sacrificial movement. And that getting that theology straight, I think, is illuminates things that the New Testament says about Jesus' sacrifice and keeps us from focusing just on that one moment of substitutionary death. 
On the other hand, I think, you know, in the current theological context, it's important to stress that the substitutionary, substitutionary death is an essential moment of the, uh, of the offering. You can't take a live animal and put it on the altar. It, it has to be slaughtered. And de Jesus' death is, in fact, a substitutionary atonement for us. He dies in our place. All those things that uh, the Leviticus ritualizes, that Isaiah promises, that the New Testament claims, those, are, uh, those shouldn't be lost sight of. But they need to be put into this larger pattern of sacrificial movement, this larger movement of sacrifice. I think another thing that Leviticus offers us is a, some basic theology of worship. When uh, Christians think about trying to go to the going to the Bible to teach them how to worship, we tend to go to New Testament texts, passages in Acts that tell us what the apostles were doing, what the followers of the apostles were doing early in the early church. A few chapters of First Corinthians, if we're being particularly daring, we might go into Revelation and suggest that Revelation is a, is a, is a liturgy. That actually provides a lot more uh, depth and richness to our liturgy than some of those other passages. Uh, but all of that is, uh, the whole New Testament is assuming the Old Testament, obviously. And New Testament worship is assuming the whole development of worship that took place in the Old Testament that begins outside of Eden, you know, the, the offerings of Cain and Abel, uh, the offerings of the patriarchs, and then the mosaic system with the tabernacle, the temple system with Solomon and so on. That's all part of the history that's coming to a culmination in Christian worship. And uh, in, in the Old Testament, the place where you go to find the basic categories, structures, ideas, patterns of Christian worship is in, I would say, the latter part of Exodus, which describes the tabernacle. The tabernacle is described in a great deal more detail than the temple is. And then the book of Leviticus, particularly the early part of the book of Leviticus, which teaches how Israel is supposed to approach God through these animal offerings. Those texts set the framework and the categories for understanding how the temple system works, which is with its modifications. There are new things in the temple, physical things in the temple. There are new practices in temple worship that didn't exist in the tabernacle worship, or at least were muted. And that's all part of the movement, again, going into, into New Testament worship. So if we want to get, get our basic, our kind of fundamental liturgical theology right, uh, the place to start is uh, uh, Exodus and Leviticus. And so that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we want to spend time doing this. Um, the Theopolis triad of Bible liturgy and culture, uh, in order to have uh, the, the Bible comes alive to us, we, we come, to, uh, come to inhabit the narrative of the Bible, as we were talking about last week, by our engagement with the liturgy. Uh, and the Bible informs our liturgical life. We want the Bible to be the shaping text for our liturgical life and uh, so understanding how Leviticus, uh, what Leviticus teaches about worship is an essential part of that and a foundational part of that theology. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.